Well, turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, which should be found on page 810 in your Pew Bible. And by the way, I want to mention the Pew Bibles. Those are new. Um, we got those just a couple weeks ago. We used them last week, but we um, are really excited about having those. The other ones, um, they were getting a little older, and then I realized that there really weren't that many around. So when I would say, open in your Pew Bibles, I, there may be like five of them around. So um, it's good to have um, a good translation um, that we can all kind of be on the same page with. Um, of course, use your own translation if you'd like, but if you'd like to be at least with what I'm using, it's right there. But it should be on page 810. And it's been a few weeks since we've been in the book of Matthew, and for the snowbirds who have recently come back, and for maybe some of the others here, let's kind of recap a little bit to where we are in the book of Matthew. Um, so we began in Matthew chapter 1 uh, around Christmas time, and we saw Jesus' family tree. The birth of Jesus, the visit of the wise men, Jesus fulfilling all of these different prophecies and all of that. All of that stuff that we consider contained in the Christmas story we looked at around Christmas time. And as we went from chapter 2 to chapter 3 of the book of Matthew, there's almost this time warp of sorts where Jesus all of a sudden goes from a kid to about 30 years old. And in chapter 3 he goes out and he's baptized by his relative John the Baptist. And he eventually ends up in the wilderness with Satan, who is tempting him there. So Jesus deals with that. He tells Satan to get away from him, which immediately Satan does. And then at this point, he's been baptized. He's withstood the temptation of the devil. And so it's here that his ministry really starts to pick up toward the end of chapter 4. He begins preaching a message. He begins telling people to repent for the kingdom of heaven was near. He begins calling disciples, these people who would come after him and literally stick right by his side for the next several years of his life. He begins teaching them. He begins healing people of all kinds of different diseases, whether they were lame or blind or they had leprosy. Whatever the case was, Jesus was healing them of all different kinds of diseases. And through all of this, from Matthew chapter 1 to where we are in Matthew chapter 5 now, we've seen something very clearly, that Jesus is the promised king. He is the one that was foretold about. He is the one who is the Christ, the one who the entire Old Testament has looked forward to coming, the promised one, this Messiah this is the one who would work and minister with all kinds of authority. Throughout the first five chapters of Matthew, there's absolutely no doubt of two things. Jesus is the king. And Jesus has more authority than the world has ever seen. More authority than Elijah. More than Moses. More than anybody else. And he begins exemplifying this in his teaching on the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He begins in Matthew 5 by blessing his disciples, pronouncing blessing upon them, that those who are poor in spirit and meek and those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, that they are blessed, that they belong to his new kingdom that he is establishing. And as those who belong to the kingdom of Christ, he calls us to be salt and light in the world. He tells us to find wherever the rot is in our communities, in our society, and to, to meet that rot and to preserve it, to slow it down, to slow the decay down that's going on all around us. But he also calls us to be lights of the gospel and to spread the gospel in our community and our world as well. 
But over the last few weeks, he, he took a little bit of a turn, and we've kind of come into this last few sermons in Matthew where he's talking a lot about the law. He talks a lot about how he is the fulfillment of the law. And then he strings these laws together and begins giving us the proper interpretation of the Old Testament. The people that were listening to Jesus on this day didn't quite get certain laws. They didn't quite get the Old Testament. They didn't quite see it as fulfilled in Jesus. And Jesus is saying, hey, the entire Old Testament that you guys say you believe, I'm the one who's the fulfillment of all of that. And so since I am the fulfillment of all of that, let me teach you how to now view the law. Let me teach you how to view the Old Testament. So he begins as a wise and good teacher to teach them the proper interpretation of the law. And keep in mind that he is not giving them new laws. He's not saying out with the old, in with the new. I'm the new guy. I'm the, I'm the big shot around town and I'm going to give you a bunch of new stuff. No, he simply takes what was old and corrects their interpretation that they had. For instance, when it comes to the well-known commandment, you shall not murder. Jesus says, it's not as simple as that. He says that if you hate somebody in your heart, then you have actually murdered them inside of your heart. So it wasn't as simple as strangling someone with your hands that that was what God was saying don't do. Really in God's heart it was, no, I don't even want you in your heart to hate somebody because if you do, then you are killing them with your heart. An imperative for the people of God, for the people of the kingdom, Jesus' kingdom was that we would love each other, not hate each other. The same thing with the well-known commandment to not commit adultery. Jesus says it's not as simple as remaining faithful to your spouse with your body, but that you need to keep yourself faithful to your spouse in your, with your body, but also in your mind as well. So that if you look at a man or if you look at a woman and you lust after them, then you have committed adultery in your heart. And so we're going to continue in this string of laws that Jesus is putting together here in verses 31 and 32, where he continues to show us the proper interpretation of the law. And so this morning, we're going to look at a difficult subject, but a needed subject, that something that needs to be addressed in the subject of divorce. Jesus is going to tell us what his expectation is when it comes to divorce, which again is admittedly very difficult because there is not one person here who has not been affected by a divorce in some way or another. But one thing that we really need to keep in mind as we address a difficult subject like this is to not separate the teaching from the teacher. Don't separate this teaching from everything else that Matthew has told us about Jesus. We're all willing to accept and to, to, to apply and to, to have certain laws that we, or, or certain commands that we like, certain things that we like to listen to, things that maybe are a little easier to, to say, okay, well, yep, I shouldn't hate somebody in my heart um, because that would be murder. We might be okay with that, but we might struggle with something like this that we're going to be looking at this morning because the subject of divorce, again, meets every single one of us where we are. This is something that is absolutely permeating in our culture, and none of us have been unaffected. But remember who Jesus is. He's the one who's fulfilled the prophecies. He's the one that the wise men came and worshipped. He's the one that withstood the temptation of the devil. And so what he has to teach us of how people in his kingdom live, even when it comes to divorce, is something that we need to understand and grasp and apply. 
you can trust that his teaching on this subject is important and absolutely authoritative over us. The king has spoken and we must obey. So look down at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray. Father, I pray more than anything that there will be clarity on this subject from your word. So by your spirit, I pray that you will do what I certainly cannot do, and that is articulate what your word has to say in a loving, compassionate way. In Christ's name, amen. Went to a pastor's breakfast uh, this past week over in Waldeboro and met with several pastors. And it was a good morning and we were able to encourage one another in the truth and do different things that pastors do, I guess, and sit around and chat and drink coffee. But there were two major discussions that we had. The first major discussion was about hell, which kind of tricky, obviously. We talked about hell and the reality of hell, the eternality of hell and all of that. Um, But there was a a second thing that we began to focus on, a second discussion really um, that we had that focused a lot on the responsibility that we as pastors have to counsel our people. And this has been something that's been a concern on my heart for a while now. So it was encouraging to hear other pastors saying what I have been thinking and going through in my mind as I've been your pastor for not, I mean, maybe around six months at this point. So it's getting into the groove of being a pastor, understanding you, you understanding me, and loving you guys and caring for you. But it was interesting to hear other pastors saying what I had been thinking. They expressed a lot of those same feelings about counseling. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that this sermon was a good time to bring up to you that I hold counseling to be a significant part of what I do in this place. So here's two things that I want you to know when it comes to me as a counselor and being in your life in that kind of way. The first thing is that I'm here for you. So I can't stress this enough that I'm here for you. I didn't become a pastor so I could just stand here on Sunday morning and to give a half hour speech and then go home and never see you again the rest of the week. I came here for you. Not to preach on Sunday mornings alone, not to simply do weddings or to do funerals, but I came to be a shepherd of The flock. Benson asked me the other day. He said, why? Of all the places that you could come to, why did you come to Maine? Well, I chose to come to Maine to help Mainers. Whether you know it or not, you need a lot of help. Okay? I'm learning that Mainers are pretty self-sufficient. You you really are. And and you don't ask for a lot of help. You pick yourself up by your own bootstraps, do your thing, do your work, go home, be with your family. And that's good. You don't ask for help a lot, but I came to Maine as a flatlander to help Mainers. I was in the coffee shop the other day, and I was talking to the guy, and I said, yeah, I'm from Rhode Island, and he's like, oh, they let you pass Kittery. I was like, okay. But I came to Maine as a flatlander to help Mainers, to pastor you, to teach you the gospel, to teach you the implications of the gospel to your life. So I am here for you and because of you, Okay. The second thing is this. You cannot waste my time by bringing me a problem or something you're struggling with. And these are obviously related, but there is no way that you can waste my time by bringing me something that you're going through. Ever. 
this is one of the things that the other pastors thought was true as well. That in general, the people of the church think that they're wasting their pastor's time by going to him and asking for help. We don't like to ask people for help, even if it's our pastor. We don't want to let anybody know that we're actually struggling with something. But we're all humans, so I know you're struggling with something. And you can know that I'm struggling with something too. And we're here to help each other. I need you. You need me. Okay? This is the kind of relationship that we need to be actively fostering. Okay? With one another. With me as your pastor. So I am here for you. And you cannot waste my time by bringing me a struggle or a problem. Or something that you're working through. Or something that you need the Bible's wisdom on. So aside from God and my family, you are my priority. My time is yours. I love you. So please let me help you if I can. So we're all clear? We're all clear. Part of why I wanted to highlight all that is because of this morning sermon topic. Our marriages in general are in a lot of trouble inside and outside of the church. The traditional family as we know it is mostly defeated. The divorce rate in our country, according to one article that I read, our country as a whole has the 10th highest divorce rate in the world, around 53%. And we hear it all the time. Five out of ten marriages fail. One out of two marriages end up in divorce. Divorce rates, even in the church across the country, are high as well. Some say that it is just as high, if not higher, than those who are outside of the church. And that's why I want to stress the fact that I'm here for you to help you as your pastor. I'm here to help you in your marriage. I'm here to give you tools for a good and healthy marriage. That is a huge responsibility that I have as your pastor. And I know, being in the first few years of marriage, that there is an ebb and flow. There are times of struggle. There are times where it's like, wow, I don't like you as much as I used to like you. I don't feel like I love you quite as much as I used to. But we're sticking this out for whatever reason. I get it. So I know that as we go through the years together, that there are going to be marriages that struggle. And there are going to be other ones that are flourishing and things are going well. Other ones that feel dry and barren. So please, this is a huge part of my responsibility as your pastor. To help you and to give you the tools for a good marriage. Because marriage is good. God instituted marriage. It's to be held in honor and esteem. However, there are times when it is biblical and even not sinful for the person sinned against to divorce your spouse. And so we see that in this morning's passage. That although divorce is not God's institution, that it is regulated by God. Okay? So divorce isn't something that was God's plan or desire or hope for His people. But there is an exception here where divorce is biblical to pursue, but only in the instances where it is okay to pursue. In other words, he is the one that gets to choose and to regulate who can and who can't get a divorce. There, are, there is nobody here who hasn't been affected by divorce. Some of you may have had divorces yourself. Some of you, your parents are divorced. So your aunts and uncles or your grandparents. Maybe some of you have grown children who have grown up and gotten divorced. So there are no people here who have not been affected by this. And so we head in, as we head into this passage, I want you to know that I'm going to preach it without apology. But yeah, I'm preaching it with compassion. Because everybody here has been affected by this. And that's, this is what Jesus says. This is what Jesus says. This is our king opening his mouth and giving the final word. So I don't get to say, but Jesus probably would have meant this, this, and this, and this is a good reason to get divorced too. What Jesus says is the final word. And we see it in Matthew again. Let's look again at Matthew 5, 
31. And hear our king's final word on divorce for those of the kingdom. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So let's start by looking at the law that Jesus brings up. He quotes Moses. So this was written thousands of years before Jesus came to earth. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Okay, so pop back to Deuteronomy 24. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Go to the fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 24. So Jesus kind of gives more of a snapshot of what the verses are that he's mentioning back in Deuteronomy 24. So when he's quoting Moses, he simply says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But for our purposes, let's go back to Deuteronomy 24 and see what he has to say, Moses that is, about divorce and what a lawful divorce looks like. So Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, If then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Tricky. A lot of this, and then this, and then this, then this, or this. So there's a lot of rigmarole that may seem. So let's kind of hopefully clarify this a little bit. So this initial law about divorce says that if a wife loses favor in her husband's eyes because of some kind of indecency that he found in her, that he is to write her a certificate of divorce. So I'm curious what your initial reaction might be to those words of Moses. When you hear the word indecent or unclean, what do you think that the law means? Because that's the big question around this passage. What does the law mean by indecent or unclean? That's what Jesus is really fighting here. So what does Jesus mean by indecent? A man can divorce his wife if he finds something indecent. Does indecent mean that she's committed adultery? Does it mean that she has a birthmark on her foot that you don't like? Does it mean that she can't cook? What does indecent mean? When left up to our own interpretation, a law like this can be seriously misconstrued. Remember, Jesus is all about correcting faulty views of the Old Testament in his sermon at this point. And the law concerning divorce was incredibly abused by people during this time. So over, two, over time, a couple schools of thought came up about the subject of divorce. The first one was called Shammai, and the second one was called Hillel. You don't need to know those two names, but what you do need to know is that there was a conservative viewpoint and a liberal viewpoint, just like most things, I suppose. But the conservative group held a strict interpretation of this law that said the Old Testament talks about the husband finding indecency. When, when, when the Old Testament says that, the indecency or the uncleanness that he finds with his wife, that it is clearly referencing something of a sexual nature, that she has committed immorality of some sort, that she's cheated on her husband or done something along those lines. But then on the other side, you have the more liberal group 
that viewed this law and basically said that if a husband finds anything that he deems unclean in his wife, then he can divorce her. So if she burns supper a few nights in a row, indecent, unclean, um, if it, if it, if, even if she begins to become unattractive to, unattractive to him, then he can say, ah, you're looking kind of unclean, looking pretty indecent, I want to get rid of you. So that was the two sides, the more conservative side and the more liberal side. Now, which side do you think would appeal more to our human nature? The liberal side. The one that says you can just, you can just divorce them for whatever you decide to divorce them for. If after a few years you get tired of your wife, you can just pass her a note of divorce and send her on her way. So understanding those two sides is important. Because the people during this time, during Jesus' day, were getting divorces all the time. It's easy to kind of look back and kind of maybe put our 1930s or 40s glasses on and say, oh, they must have never gotten divorced back 2,000 years ago. But they were getting divorced all the time. That's why this was kind of a hot topic. That's why Jesus is addressing this subject. Because the people and the religious leaders were teaching the people, hey, you can get divorced for whatever you want. All you've got to do is write a certificate of divorce. That's what the law says to do. So the religious leaders in the, were teaching this. The people were following after their teaching. Okay. So if you're still in Deuteronomy, why don't you bounce back to Matthew. But instead of going to Matthew 5, bounce up to Matthew 19. Again, we don't really bounce around that much in the Bible. We usually stay in one. But because this is more of an all-encompassing sermon on this subject. I wanted to address it a little more fully. But Jesus gets addressed by these religious leaders again up in Matthew chapter 19 and it's important to see um, what he has to say to them. You get a sense in Matthew 19 that the religious leaders coming to Jesus were coming coming to him um, with more of a sideways view as usual. They were were coming at him. They weren't coming to sit at his feet. They were kind of coming to stick it to him a little bit. Your text probably says that they came to him in order to test Jesus. But Matthew 19, and look at verse 3. Some Pharisees came to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Okay, so stop there. The Pharisees are showing you what they think about the law. They're showing you if they're in the conservative side or the liberal side. And they're obviously over on the liberal side, aren't they? In the question that they ask. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So the Pharisees come to Jesus already with their liberal position in their minds. And they want to know, rather they want to test Jesus, but they want to know if according to Jesus, if it's okay to divorce your wife for any reason. And look what Jesus says in verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus' response to their first question doesn't go back simply to the law, but he actually goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible with Adam and Eve, where he says that what was supposed to happen was a man was supposed to leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife, and they were to become one flesh. And then he throws the exclamation on the point, or the exclamation point onto it, and says, what God has joined together, no man is to separate. But the Pharisees ask another question, and this one is actually pertaining to the law that we're looking at in Matthew 5. So look at verse 7. 
Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. So the regulation of divorce is the result of hard hearts. The Old Testament book of Malachi says that God hates divorce. And here Jesus says divorce is because of the hardness of our hearts. In the Old Testament, Moses permitted that you could write your wife a certificate of divorce. And the reason that you had to actually take the time and write a certificate of divorce was that so you could take some time to think about what you were doing. That divorce wasn't just happening uh, spontaneously. Whenever you decide, you wake up and you get a couple of your buddies around that could be witnesses and you say, uh, I'm going to divorce her. And then, okay, we're witnesses of that fact and be done. You couldn't do it at the snap of your fingers. You actually had to wait, write it out and think through it. So divorce wasn't supposed to happen rashly or quickly. You had to take the time. So this is the Old Testament law of divorce. If you're going to divorce your wife, you need to take that time and to write your certificate of divorce out. And the reason that this wasn't stated, again, wasn't because God approved or loved the idea of divorce. He hates it. But because the people's hearts were hard, he allowed divorce. He chose to regulate divorce in his own way. Okay? So remember those two schools of thought, that conservative side and that liberal side. The conservative said you can only get divorced if your spouse has committed some kind of sexual immorality. And then on the other side, the liberal said you can get divorced for whatever you want, no-fault divorce. You can get divorced for any reason you deem good enough. But at this point, it doesn't quite matter what the schools of thought think, does it? It matters what Jesus has to say. So we want to see what Jesus has to say about Divorce. So we see what he says in Matthew 5, verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes or commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, so sometimes it's easier to understand um, what's going on if we take out a phrase. So let's take out the phrase, except for sexual immorality. Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries the divorced woman also commits adultery by marrying her. And so those two, the woman who was divorced and the other man she ends up marrying, will be committing adultery. In the same way, according to Matthew 19, the husband that gets divorced um, is also committing adultery when he gets remarried because he didn't divorce his wife on the grounds of sexual immorality. Okay, if you... You're as confused as I was a few days ago when I was reading this verses. And I want to try to illustrate this a little bit. Jack and Jane, two Christian young people, get married. After a while, Jack and Jane aren't getting along. The honeymoon stage is over. They're a few years into the marriage. They have a kid, but things just aren't going well. There's the a typical arguing and petty stuff, but there has been a general drifting away from each other for some time. And more and more differences are coming up. And so Jack decides, I want to get a divorce. i I got to separate from you. I, I don't want to be together anymore. Well, Jane doesn't want to be with Jack anymore either. So she signs the divorce papers. 
a year down the road, they have joint custody of the child. Everything is all settled, and Jane meets a nice guy, and she wants to marry this guy, and so they get married. Jack meets a nice girl, and they want to get married, so they get married. Jesus calls the second marriages of this husband and the wife adulterous because their divorce wasn't the result of sexual immorality. It was simply because of differences or not wanting to be together. Okay? So although they are genuinely divorced, they are still obligated as professing Christians to reconcile with one another, be married, and not remain in a divorced state. They have no biblical cause or reason to remain divorced. They're still obligated to come back together. So this is true of those who belong to the kingdom of God. Now, I said I would tell you what it says without apology, but that I would tell you what it says with compassion. Again, if you're anything like me, that doesn't jive. That, that doesn't fit what we want. That doesn't fit what our society wants. This teaching of Jesus is probably one of our least favorite teachings because it meets so many of us right where we are. His teaching here touches every single divorce that you and I know of. So I want to give a few succinct thoughts of Jesus' teaching here to kind of just encapsulate a few of the ideas Jesus is not recommending divorce even if your spouse has committed adultery. He's simply saying that you may get biblically divorced if you cannot reconcile with your spouse if they have committed adultery. Second thing, Jesus is saying that you cannot get divorced for a reason that you deem significant, but only for what he has deemed to be the marriage breaker, immorality. The third thing, Jesus is saying that if you do divorce your wife, or husband for a reason other than immorality, then you are causing them to commit adultery if they choose to marry a second spouse. So since we're all affected by divorce in some way, I want to make something very clear. That divorce is not the unforgivable sin. I think the church as a whole has blown divorce up to be this astronomical bigger than every other sin deal, and I find that despicable. If you have disobeyed the words of Christ in this passage, there is forgiveness. And we as a church should not refuse to extend forgiveness and to extend reconciliation with people who have gone through a divorce. How can we hold back forgiveness and reconciliation when our God extends it to them? We've turned divorce into a black mark that forever has to remain on those who have had one. But does God promise forgiveness or what? Does God grant and cleanse us and grant us repentance? Absolutely. Did God take King David in spite of his mistakes with his adultery and his murder and still do great things with him? Absolutely. Were there still consequences for his sin? Yes. But just because David screwed up didn't mean that he was unusable to God. And I fear that in the church, across the country, and in things that I've read, that we've turned this into a thing where you almost can't even serve in a church if you've had a divorce. And that's not going to be the case here. If we in the church are unwilling to follow God in the forgiving and the accepting of those who have made mistakes, then we shouldn't be counted as God's people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Neither the sexually immoral, immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. 
But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So Paul is writing to this congregation, knowing of the sins that they had committed in their former lives. He knew that they were immoral, that they were greedy, that they were drunks and homosexuals and thieves, sitting in the congregation reading this letter that Paul had written to them. But he doesn't say, and all of you are still defined by your former sins. He says, and such were some of you. He doesn't say, all you guys, you still need to kind of keep that. You still need to be considered a homosexual if you used to live that lifestyle. Or you need to be considered a drunk if you used to be a drunk. No. Such were some of you. And that's the language we're going to use here. That if you have lived an adulterous life, an immoral life, a greedy life, a drunk life, or if you have had seven divorces, it doesn't matter. what. Well, not going to say such are you, it's such were you. I'm going to use the language of the Bible. So if you have broken the words of Jesus here, don't think for a second that you can't be forgiven. For those who may be married right now, but you really don't see how your marriage can or will end up working out, I would beg you to heed the words of Christ here. Don't, don't disobey Jesus. You may say, all I want is just to be happy. I just want to have some peace in my life. And this person is not bringing that to me. But I can promise you that true happiness and joy in God will not come as a result of adding more sin onto it. God can take what looks like pieces and shreds of a marriage and gloriously weave it back together into a beautiful testimony of His grace. For those of you who might say, wow, okay. So if Jesus says that if I got divorced and then I got remarried, that I'm living in this adulterous marriage somehow, there's forgiveness. There's restoration. There's reconciliation only found in God. Nobody here has a marriage that is too far gone for God to do something remarkable with. Jesus was killed on the cross for the sins in your marriage and in mine. And if Jesus could be raised out of his grave after being dead then he can take your marriage, he can raise it, and you breathe new life into it. Let's pray.